Welcome to a podcast-only special interview from On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. The recent leak of Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito's draft ruling on the most important case in years has the entire nation preparing for a future where the federal government no longer guarantees a woman's right to access abortion services. Because the Supreme Court looks set to overturn Roe v. Wade, the landmark case that legalized abortion in America in 1973. That had me digging through my old interviews. Because five years ago, I sat down for a conversation with Sarah Weddington. In the 1970s, she was the lawyer who represented Jane Roe at the Supreme Court. First in number 70, 18, Roe against Wade. Mrs. Weddington, you may proceed whenever you're ready. She was 26 years old. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. We are once again before this court to ask relief against the continued enforcement of the Texas abortion statute. That Texas statute at the time held that all abortions were illegal, except those performed to save the life of the woman. Weddington argued that was unconstitutional. We do not ask this court to rule that abortion is good or desirable in any particular situation. We are here to advocate that the decision as to whether or not a particular woman will continue to carry or will terminate a pregnancy is a decision that should be made by that individual. That, in fact, she has a constitutional right to make that decision for herself. For some interesting reasons you'll hear about later, oral argument in Roe happened twice, first in December 1971 and then again in October 1972. Then, on January 22, 1973, the court issued its opinion. Seven of the justices agreed with Weddington, a decision that legalized abortion across the country. However, there is every indication now that this June, almost 50 years after Weddington's victory, the Supreme Court will overturn Roe v. Wade. Sarah Weddington won't know that. She died last year. December 26, 2021, in Austin, Texas. She was 76. I sat down with Sarah Weddington in 2017. Today, we're offering that conversation to you once again. And I started by asking her what drew her to the Roe case to begin with, because she seemed an unlikely attorney for such a controversial case. Back in the 1970s, a newspaper had described her as, quote, hardly countercultural middle class and married, the daughter of a Methodist minister and a person who headed her chapter of the future homemakers of America. Now, I was also the drum major for the Canyon Junior High Band, and then I was the secretary of the freshman class at law school. You know, there were so few women then. When I was at uh, Harvard Law School yesterday with some of their particularly women students and the dean, of course, who's a female Uh, We were talking about the fact that at that point, there were five women in my law school class Hmm. out of about 150, 250. You know, it it was, we were such a small group. This was in the 1960s, mid-1960s? Yes, uh yeah. Yeah. There was a lot of change and a lot of thinking uh, about challenging laws restricting uh, reproductive rights uh, in Texas. Yeah. So tell us the story then of how 
you eventually met up with Linda Coffey, who was your co-counsel. She, co- she was another woman out of the five mm-hmm. who was in my class in law school. Yeah. And so this group of mostly women, two men, we were talking in the law school lounge one day and they said, you know, we're really worried we're going to get prosecuted as accomplices to the crime of abortion for sending people to various places. We really think we need to file a lawsuit. And so I said I'd research it, and I did, and I came back, and we met again. And they said to me, Sarah, what would you charge us to bring a case against this law? And I said, oh, I'd do it for free. And they said, you are our lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) Now, in those early days, before the case began making its way through the court system, I mean, what was your initial thought about the legal basis on which to challenge abortion restrictions? There had been one prior case uh, that was Griswold versus Connecticut. It was a case really about contraception where contraception was illegal. And a woman named Estelle Griswold, who was the director of the New Haven Planned Parenthood, and her doctor, a man named Lee Buxton, had given a contraceptive device, as it's described in the case, to a married couple. They were arrested, prosecuted, and convicted of being, uh, you know, giving contraception, which was illegal. So they filed suit against that, and they won their case based on the 14th Amendment, which was privacy, that a woman has a right of privacy to decide for herself whether to continue or terminate a pregnant mm. pregnancy. And so that was the basic um, thing we argued. But to tell you the truth, we also argued the 1st, the 4th, the 5th, the 8th, the 9th, and the 14th Amendments. Mm -hmm. And in the Supreme Court hearing that one of the judges said, in other words, Miss Weddington, anywhere we'll find it is okay with you. And I said, yes, sir. But I thought the right of privacy would be the one. You know, it's such a potent argument, and obviously it was a convincing one uh, uh, when the decision the landmark decision was issued by the Supreme Court in 1973. But as you well know, I mean, there are a lot of conservative legal scholars and anti-abortion activists who to this day insist that there is no right to privacy enumerated or explicitly in the Constitution. Well, and it, there's not the word privacy. Yeah. But when you put together what the people writing the Constitution were trying to do, keep the government out of determining the most vital parts of your life, then there was a right of privacy. And that's just the words the Supreme Court used to describe it. So let's hear exactly how Sarah Weddington made that argument. This is an extended excerpt of the first time she argued the case at the Supreme Court in 1971. The excerpt is a couple of minutes long, which is longer than we'd usually play. But it's fascinating to hear how Weddington builds her argument that while the right to an abortion may not be explicitly stated in the Constitution, it need not be, since she argued that the liberties provided by what she called the penumbra of the Constitution as a whole were clear. The exchange begins with Justice Potter Stewart. Your Honor, in the lower court, as I'm sure you're aware, the court 
held that the right to determine whether or not to continue a pregnancy rested upon the Ninth Amendment, which of course reserves those rights not specifically enumerated to the government, to the people. I think it is important to note uh, in a law review article recently submitted to the court and uh, uh, distributed among counsel by Professor Cyril Means, Jr., entitled The Phoenix of Abortional uh, Freedom, that at the time the Constitution was adopted, there was no common law prohibition against abortion, that they were available to the women of this country. Certainly, under the Griswold decision, it appears that the members of the court in that case were obviously divided as to the specific constitutional framework of the right which they held to exist in the Griswold decision. I'm a little reluctant to uh, aspire to a wisdom that the court did not, was not in agreement on. I do feel that it is that the Ninth Amendment is an appropriate place for the freedom to rest. I think the Fourteenth Amendment is equally an appropriate place. Under the rights of persons to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, I think in as far as liberty is meaningful, that liberty to these women would mean liberty from being forced to continue the unwanted pregnancy. You're relying in this branch of your argument simply on the due process clause of the 14th Amendment? We had originally brought the suit alleging both the due process clause, the equal protection clause, the Ninth Amendment, and a variety of others. Since and anything the, else that might have been. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, uh, since the district court found the right to reside in the Ninth Amendment, we pointed our attention in the brief to that particular aspect of the Constitution. But I think we would not presume. Uh, I I do feel that that in so much as members of the court had said that the Ninth Amendment applies to rights reserved to the people and those which were most important, and certainly this is that the Ninth Amendment is the appropriate place. Insofar as the court has said that uh, that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness involve the very most fundamental things of people, that. This matter is one of those most fundamental matters. I think in as far as the court has said that there is a penumbra that exists uh, to encompass the entire uh, purpose of the Constitution, that I think one of the purposes of the Constitution was to guarantee to the individual the right to determine the course of their own lives. Sarah Weddington in Oral Argument in 1971. In our 2017 interview, Weddington went on to tell me that the rights of women weren't the justice's only concern. The high court also took into consideration the rights of physicians who treated women who sought abortions. Blackman was the person who wrote the opinion. He had been the medical, uh, well, the legal counsel for Mayo Clinic Mm -hmm. before he went on the bench. And so he was particularly concerned about doctors, the impact of these laws on doctors. And then doctors talked to him at Mayo Clinic about the tragedies that happened because of the laws. Because laws against abortion don't end abortion or keep them from happening. They just make them much more dangerous. Parkland Hospital in Dallas is a very famous trauma hospital. Uh, That's where John F. Kennedy was taken when he was shot. And that hospital had a ward 
called the IOB ward, Infected Obstetrics. Hmm. And it was basically for women who had done self-abortion, who had had illegal abortion, uh, sometimes by people who had no skill and ended up really, you know, perforating and all kinds of problems. And so a lot of the doctors, almost all of them in that period, who were in law school ended up, if they were in Dallas, working in the IOB ward. So they spent a lot of time trying to save the fertility, trying to save the lives of women who were there because of abortion. Sarah Weddington's Texas roots ran deep. Clearly, the constitutionality of Texas law was at question in Roe v. Wade. But when you hear the entirety of the oral arguments in the 1970s, you also hear how Texas culture comes into play. Right off the bat, when Chief Justice Warren Burger introduced the attorney defending Texas law, the state's assistant attorney general, Jay Floyd. Thank you, uh, Mrs. Weddington, Mr. Floyd. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. It's an old joke, but when a argue, man argues against two beautiful ladies like this, they're going to have the last word. Floyd spent considerable time arguing that Jane Roe did not have the standing to bring the case to court. Because as the case worked its way from Texas to Washington, Jane Roe no longer needed an abortion. She had given birth and put the baby up for adoption. Justice Potter Stewart, though, asked Floyd, what about other Texas women? Uh, how do you, what, what procedure would you suggest for any pregnant female in the state of Texas ever to get any judicial consideration of this constitutional claim? Your Honor, let me answer your question with a statement, if I may. I do not believe it can be done. There are situations in which, of course, as the court knows, no remedy is provided. Now, I think she makes her choice prior to the time she becomes pregnant. That is the time of the choice. It's like more or less, well, the first three or four years of her life, we don't remember anything. Uh, But once a child is born, a woman no longer has a choice. And I think pregnancy may terminate that choice. That's well. Maybe she makes her choice when she decides to live in Texas. May I proceed? There's no restriction on moving. I want to talk with you in more detail about uh, the legal path that you took to arguing Roe in the Supreme Court. But let me just step aside here for a second and ask about your own personal experience. Mm-hmm. Um, because in 1992, you wrote a memoir in which, for the first time, mm-hmm. I think you, you made public that you have direct experience with this question of of abortion. Right. Can you tell us that story? Sure. Uh, in the 60s, while I was in law school, I was dating a man, Ron Weddington, and became pregnant. And so... I, I had to finish law school. I had to put him through law school. I had lots to do. And I just could not stop to have a pregnancy at that point. So Ron asked somebody who knew somebody who knew a name in Mexico. I remember it was $400 I had to give him. Uh, And we drove to Mexico, found his office. Um, 
I can still remember thinking, oh, I hope I don't die. And even more than that, I hope no one ever finds out about this. You know, I look back now, it was so scary at the time. But I was back and at work and in school Monday morning. Even with the the cushion of many decades, it still sounds terrifying. I mean, having to, <laughs> it sounds, it does sound frightening to me. I mean, to yeah. cross the border and put your your life and health in the hands of someone you you've never even met. But you think about so many women that have had terrible experiences. I was one of the lucky ones because yeah. I had the money. Well, how much of the fact that I mean, even though you say you were the luck, one of the lucky ones and you had the money, uh, you still had to go to. Oh, extraordinary yeah. means to to get this procedure. I mean, how much of your own personal experience uh, is helped drive you to you know wanting to pursue Roe the way you and Linda Coffey did all the way to the Supreme Court? Well, certainly part of it because I didn't want anybody else to ever have to go through that. Now you were twenty six years mm-hmm. old when you presented your oral argument before the United mm-hmm. States Supreme Court. Um. That fact in, fact in and of itself is quite remarkable to me. <laughs> I think so, too. And now I look back and think, oh, my gosh. <laughs> but it's interesting because they still think around the Supreme Court that I was the youngest person ever to argue in the Supreme Court, man or woman. And, I mean, also we should note at that time all nine justices were men. As well. Oh, yeah. And there were seven the first time. Then the second time we argued, it was nine men. And why did it have to go back for that second time? Well, the first time we argued, there were only seven justices, and there were a number of the judges who felt they should hold it until there were nine judges, because it was such an important and controversial case that it would be better to have the involvement of nine judges. Well, we actually have some of the audio from the oral arguments that you gave before the Supreme Court. Uh, Again, the oral argument happened in 1972. The decision came out in 1973. So here's a little excerpt. This is where uh, Justice Harry Blackman is questioning you over um, what constitutes the rights of a fetus. Here we go. But here we have a person, the woman, entitled to fundamental constitutional rights as opposed to the fetus prior to birth, where there is no establishment of any kind of federal constitutional rights. Well, do I get from this, then, that your case depends primarily on the proposition that the fetus has no constitutional rights? It depends on saying that the woman has a fundamental constitutional right and that the state has not proved any compelling interest for regulation in the area. Even even if the court, at some point, determined the fetus to be entitled to constitutional protection, you would still get back into the weighing of one life against another. Help me understand, how did you feel when you're standing before those nine, those nine justices and you were making the oral argument? I mean, were, this, may, this sounds so silly, me asking you this, but I've got to do it anyway. I mean, were, were, you ner- were you nervous? Or uh, were you- yes. <laughs> and part of it was because the outcome of that case was so important. It was going to affect the lives of countless women uh, and families across this country for years. And I, the only thing is, if you had said to me that day, you're still going to be talking about this in 44-plus years, I wouldn't have believed that. 
when you found out that uh, the case had been decided in your favor, it was 7-2, right? Yes, because then we had nine judges. And I had run for the legislature in Austin, Texas, because I didn't know if I was winning or losing the case. So we thought, well, if we don't win in the Supreme Court, at least you would be in the legislature and you could introduce legislation to make abortion legal in Texas. And we think we can get the votes to do it. And when you found out that uh, that, that I was in the won, legislature, yeah. I was in the what Capitol. was your reaction? Well, first the phone rang and an assistant answered it, and it was a reporter from the New York Times. And that reporter said, "Does Miss Weddington have a comment today about Roe versus Wade?" The assistant who answered the phone said, "Should she?" And the reporter said, "It was decided today." And the assistant said, "How was it decided?" And the reporter said she won it seven to two. And that was so exciting, except just knowing I won, but not knowing what the opinion said, what the grounds were. I couldn't really talk to the press much because I just said, oh, I'm so excited. But on what basis was this? So I called a friend in Washington, said, go to the court, get a copy of the opinion, read it, call me back, tell me what it says. And she did. So then the next day I started making comments. Now, Sarah Weddington, uh, of course, you know that Norma McCorvey, who was Jane Roe in Roe v. Wade, years after the case was decided, she underwent a total transformation in her view of abortion, and she ended her life being totally opposed to all abortions. Um, That said, I I wanted to ask you about your relationship with her during the time of, of the case, because in 1994... Uh, McCorvey, Norma McCorvey, had this very interesting, uh, powerful quotation in the New York Times. She was describing how uh, in one of the first meetings she had with you in, in the early days of Roe v. Wade that you had met her in a pizza parlor and um, she was telling you that she desperately needed an abortion. Then she told the New York Times, quote, she needed me to be pregnant for her case. I set Sarah Weddington up on a pedestal like a rose petal, but when it came my turn, well, Sarah saw these cuts on my wrists, my swollen eyes from crying, the miserable person sitting across from her, and she knew she had a patsy. Wow. She goes on and says, she knew I wouldn't go outside the realm of her and Linda. I was too scared. It was one of the most hideous times of my life. So I wonder what your reaction is to that, that, you know, Norma McCorvey says that she was your patsy. No. I really uh, respected her for a long time because I had explained to her that pregnancies didn't take as long as cases did. And we would try to do the case as fast as we could and get a decision, but it was unlikely we would get it in time for her to have an abortion. And so we were very careful to explain those things. But the fact that she seemed to have thought now that I should tell her where an abortion was, which was illegal, uh, and probably pay for it because she didn't have any money. No, I'm not going to tell my clients to go do illegal things. Uh, you know, Sarah Weddington, the one of one of the reasons why I just wanted to to touch on Norma McCorvey's own uh, transformation in regarding her view on abortion is I think it's sort of emblematic on how uh, unsettled. Uh, the nation as a whole still feels. I mean, 
Roe happened. It's still legal, but obviously, it's the abortion is one of the most controversial uh, issues in the United States today. I mean, we were looking at um, state by state statistics and found that some 22 states right now in the United States have six or more abortion restrictions on the books. So I'm wondering, I mean, regardless of if another a, a case makes it all the way to the Supreme Court that challenges the, the constitutionality of Roe itself, uh, it seems as if at the state level it may not even matter because there have been there there's been a, a very a successful effort uh, to to make abortion access harder and harder. Does that concern you? Oh yes, you have a reduced number of doctors who are who are willing to help women who are in need of reproductive rights uh, issues and abortion. And the more restrictions that are passed, the harder it is for them. In Texas, a lot of those restrictions have been passed in recent years. And so there are about, well, for a while, there were half the number of abortion clinics that there had been before those laws passed. Now there are even fewer. And so you're making it where women have to travel, sometimes across the state, sometimes across state lines. And there was one time when Trump was being interviewed, and the interviewer said, well, what if a woman has to go across state lines? And he said, well, she just has to go across state lines. But that's someone talking who I think has a helicopter of his own and a mm. plane of his own and a big retinue of cars and ways to go and the money. A lot of women don't have that. Are you concerned that under a Trump administration, if we get... Um you know, more than just this one new Supreme Court seat, if we get some more substantial change in the court, that Roe could get overturned. I'm worried about that, and, pos and partly because Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who's one of the advocates for women being able to make their own decisions, is 83. There are another couple of the judges who are late 70s. One judge I'm concerned about but not frantic about Whereas if you ended up with several new judges, then that really concerns me. Because if you look at who would be appointing them, who would be confirming them, we could have a situation where we might not be able to yeah. keep a majority. Now, my final question to you, I mean, we've talked a lot about the legal arguments you made in front of the Supreme Court, but I think one of the reasons, maybe the reason why abortion remains such a contentious issue in the United States is that people have profound moral questions about it. So for those folks listening to, who currently believe that abortion is murder, how do you respond when people say that? Well, first, I think it's a question of who gets to make the decision. Because if you, again, like I said in the oral argument, if you look at the Constitution, it and even the Bible talks about when the first breath is taken, not when conception occurs. So I respect that there are some people who have that, you know, once conception occurs, that's it. But I still think it comes down to who gets to make that decision. And I just don't think it could be the government. My Conversation with Texas attorney Sarah Weddington from 2017. Weddington died last year in December of 2021. On Monday, 
we're going to take a look at what's coming next for abortion access in the United States and why this country is moving in the opposite direction from much of the rest of the world, most notably Latin America, which has recently expanded abortion access for women. That's coming up on Monday. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Thanks for listening and subscribing. This is On Point.